0: back to cyber context the podcast featuring jonathan moore the chief technology officer of spider oak i'm christian whiten jonathan uh we've had some uh, new developments with the ukraine war you know when this war started when russia invaded ukraine over a month ago uh there was there were some hints of cyber activity but not a lot of information Uh, some hints of activities against satellites but again uh, awfully vague on the details can you bring us up to speed what's happened more recently and have we gotten more information about what uh, took place in the early phases of the war?
1: Um well, I think we've got a little more maybe not clarity on exactly what took place. I think, you know, to be clear, you know, a lot of computers that might have been hacked have been blown up. And also it's very clear that, you know, the information we're getting out from the Ukraine is very much driven by uh, Ukrainian propaganda, and that's totally appropriate, right? They show the Russian tanks; they blow up, not the tanks that Russia of theirs that Russia blows up. And you know, they haven't really addressed the cyber impacts Russia's had on them. Um, so we may have seen some of the opposite. So again, it's like our, our li- information is limited, but we are getting a lot of really useful and interesting details. Um, and I think that we should also maybe briefly talk about. The hacktivism and external stuff that's been going on simultaneously, uh, because some of that's interesting as well. But to sort of address the sort of the Russian question head on, you know, there's been a lot of like questioning of like, well, did Russia not have a cyber capability? Where is it? Did they not bring it? Is it held in reserve? And you know, I think something I have hypothesized, and I believe I probably mentioned this on the last time we talked, is that. A lot of it has to do with us having a misunderstanding of what Russian Russian cyber capabilities are. Not that they have a lack of capabilities, but they've developed them differently than we have. I think additionally, you know, there's also a big disconnect from sort of like the uh, analytical and and pundit dream of the cyber war, right? The sort <laughs> of clean electronic war that didn't leave bodies in the streets or buildings crumbling, where I think, you know, the the analysis I've heard that makes a lot more sense to me is that there's just war and cyber is a component of a military campaign. And you may see cases where you do see cyber being the major engagement, but you know, when you're trying to literally do a take have a land grab and, you know, overthrow a regime, of course cyber is not going to be the only component involved. So, in the context of this war in the Ukraine, what we now know is that the Russians have deployed at least seven unique wipers. And so these are software that are built to be deployed to a device and cause that device to become non-functional, uh, destroying any data that's on it. Um, and so we've seen six different wipers that are deployed against you know IT uh, infrastructure, as well as a seventh, which is what was actually used in the Viasat attack. So in that to start it there is, those, the endpoints were terminals that had an embedded Linux operating system and the adversary installed malware on those. That was a wiper that destroyed the uh, system from within. Uh, it wasn't just the configuration change or something like that. It was an active piece of malware that did that damage. Uh, and that's interesting because I believe that was actually a power PC architecture. So they didn't even just like, they weren't just like taking something off the shelf and, and putting it out there. It was a unique piece of software. And the way generally that that attack appears to have gone overall is that they found a improperly protected bit of infrastructure. They access that and then move laterally through that network to gain ability to push updates to the modems and push this malware to it. So I think that's, that's sort of an interesting kind of thing. And again, uh, and when we look at these, we look at these wipers that were done against um, the IT infrastructure. I mean, I think these are all very credible. Um military targets and military attacks. It's unfortunate there's collateral damage, but this is the infrastructure that was being used to defend Ukraine. You know, it's the infrastructure used by the civilian government to organize and, you know, command its troops. It's the um, infrastructure used by those those governments and those militaries to communicate and affect operations. So I think what we're seeing is is a, a valid and restrained use of cyber, you know in in war and i think what we were all looking for was oh hey you know like capabilities like we saw where the US disabled the Iranian air defense system supposedly uh capabilities with like stuxnet where there's like incredibly deep hack malware that's jumping air gaps and covertly destroying equipment we're looking for things like flame That use novel cryptographic attacks against uh, certificates to get a code signing certificate for Windows. You know, and I think the U.S. uh, and, you know, some of its partner states have developed some incredibly, I, I was thinking it's like deep capabilities in cyber. But I think the way to look at it is not that Russia didn't show up. The way to look at it is that Russia made different strategic decisions. These capabilities are must be developed far in advance, right? You can't just be on Saturday being like, you know, I think I want to take down Iranian air defense, and on Sunday do it, right? These take months or years worth of you know continual penetration, research, development, and understanding to enact. I mean, I don't really know. Maybe maybe they did make that decision overnight, but I think if you're going to look in the average case, if you want to regularly have those kind of capabilities, it requires a sustained, long-term investment. And the thing is, is that most of those investments, you're never going to use. You're holding them there in case, right? I mean, and hopefully we're not going to use, you know, any tactical, any nuclear weapons. And we're developing those under the same kind of regime. Um, but if you look at what the kind of capabilities that Russia's built, they're very flexible, they're very cheap, and they can be deployed in a lot of different environments. And so I think you're looking at an investment that has a lot better short-term returns and maybe just better returns on... Uh, average for the average hour or dollar you spend developing those capabilities. So I think that the the big picture here is that in, in terms of Russians' capabilities, is that they absolutely have shown up with cyber capabilities. They've deployed them to meet their military and political goals, and they've actually done so with some restraint and and effectiveness. Um, I think what has surprised people that I think maybe is interesting to ask broader questions about is the fact that, like, why does the Ukraine have internet access at all? Like, why weren't they able to deny communications across the area completely? Um, You know, some of that, I think, actually has turned out is that Russia actually kind of needed to depend on those capabilities, same capabilities to wage its campaign. Um, But maybe there are other deeper questions there. And I think that's the area where we probably, uh, you know, as a community should explore more and really understand, like, you know, some of these other things that seem like we would have expected Russia to go after they didn't. Is that because they they didn't want to upset the civilian population because they wanted to use those capabilities or because they couldn't uh, take them down? I think we do have to realize that Ukraine had an awful lot of help from the West leading up to the war to secure the systems that they needed. and there there are certainly stories of the heroic network operators in the Ukraine right now who are you know working twenty four seven to keep those telecommunications systems up and running to support the population and the government.
0: Right. You know, when you say um, the with the malmar, with the wiping uh, that was pushed through updates to a layman like me, that actually sounds a little like solar winds, uh, which I believe was attributed to Russia. I guess you never really know if it's Russia or China behind these things. Um, in in anything that you're seeing so far, are lessons learned from those more recent sophisticated hacks like solar winds being used? Is that what was used with this wiping technology, or is it is it pretty separate? Well,
1: I I think it's both the same and very different, right? So in this case, it was an internal management interface used sort of an enterprise management tool to manage the fleet of modems that are operated, you know, sort of in in joint operations with their customers, right? So the customer buys or rents the modem and Viasat helps maintain that capability uh, on the cust- on-premise the on the customers. So, but I think, uh, and SolarWinds is a management um, tool to be used by uh, service providers who are doing, you know, outsourced IT and other kinds of things to help manage their customers' IT infrastructure. So structurally, they're the same, uh, in terms of the time of technology they apply and problems. But organizationally, they're very different, being you know, a tool that's added on top of an existing product to allow a third party to manage your networks versus part of the first party capability. Um, but I think that the big lesson is that you know, supply chain attacks are going to be a, a serious threat going into the future. You know, if we are able to make a significant impact on other kinds of malware spread through phishing campaigns um, or Excel macros or whatever the the vector is for the malware uh, that adversaries are going to increasingly look to supply chain attacks. And I think what you can see, the power of them in this, and the NoPeta was a supply chain attack. We've seen the CC Cleaner as a supply chain attack. We've seen a large number of these supply chain attacks um, not they're not the common case today, but what you see is when they are deployed, they have such a breadth in their attack that they can be incredibly effective, and the return on investment can be very high. Uh, I think the downside of these supply chain attacks, to the adversaries, is they tend to be less covert because you're attacking an entire population simultaneously. Uh, so they they're not good for covert operations. But if you want to make a big effect quickly, these supply chain attacks are things we should be really concerned about. Hmm.
0: With um, with the exploit used, with the wiper used against uh, ViaSat, uh, and you're someone who th- spends a lot of time thinking about satellite security, communication security, encryption. Is that something where they let their guard down, and should have you think been aware that this this vulnerability existed, or was it pretty unique the way it was? was done? Do you think, uh, you know, are we going to come out of this with the realization that our satellites need uh, a lot better um, encryption and zero trust uh, uh, concept of design and just better security all around? Or is it too early to draw conclusions? Well, I think to be clear, this is an attack against the terrestrial terminals used
1: in the the satellite network. Uh Uh, And I think, though, what is, you know, the, the terminals that talk to the satellites, uh, that, that live on the ground but I think um you know what is clear is that we really should be concerned about this style of swing I, mean, I guess the thing was this was not actually a very difficult attack I mean it showed planning and effort and a desire to succeed by by the adversary but it's not like wow that was like incredibly complex and novel it was like a fairly standard set of you find your way into the network, you move laterally, uh, and then you deploy your, you know, sort of against your target um, kind of strategy of attack. Uh, so uh, I, I think at that level, it is very typical of what you see in intrusions into IT systems and not special. The you know, sort of unique nature of it was the target um, and the use of a, a wiper targeted to an IoT device um uh, so I think there there's some unique aspects, but largely it's not exciting and interesting, and it shows sort of the real dangers of centralized authority and not having strong controls around the application of that authority. you know we do need those, right? you know you do want you know the uh, the IT admins at your corporate network to be able to to manage the computers they're responsible for, and that involves a lot of centralization. But the controls around protecting that centralization, uh, you know, are, are not adequate. The controls against protecting, the, you know, a company is the thing that issues an update to their software, right? So that is an inherently centralized uh, action, but the controls put around protecting those don't tend, don't look to be adequate in almost any environment.
0: Are you it all by the lack of uh, at least obvious old-fashioned electronic warfare? Or maybe it's happening and just not making headlines. Oh, but, you know, old-fashioned oh, no, jamming, jamming of the, radars and just jamming of no, microwave we're, we're, transmissions.
1: We're absolutely seeing that. But there, there's some complications in it, right? So uh, Hawkeye 360 has a report which you can go look at about their of GPS jamming in areas in which uh, Russian military forces are active. So we're definitely, we, there have been, there's actually, the Ukra- Ukrainian forces captured a electronic, a Russian electronic warfare unit, um, and it has since been shipped off to the U.S. to be analyzed. Um, so that, that's actually probably a huge loss uh, for Russian capabilities in that, you know, the U.S. now has um, electronic warfare units in their hands to take apart and really deeply understand. Um, so I think we absolutely have seen the the EW out there in the field um, and lots of evidence of it and uh, even some of the artifacts. Uh, but I think there's a, another side of the story. It's like another side of the story is that uh, one of the surprising things here is the level. And this goes back to this common thread of the logistical challenges that the Russian forces have had. And they have not been equipped with the latest um, secure comms equipment. They actually very heavily relied on the uh, Ukrainian civilian infrastructure, like literally making phone calls with burner phones back to Russia to report like the death of a, a Russian general. And so we've gotten this very rich signals intelligence that the Ukraine is using well for propaganda and publishing these conversations, uh, audio recordings of these conversations to you know show the failure uh, of Russia. I mean, again, it's propaganda, so we have to take it, you know, with with understand its intended message. Um, uh, but we've also seen other things where, like, many of the Russian troops were just given consumer radios, and you can go to open source, you know, sort of SDR listening stations around the world and get recordings of Russian troops asking for, for support. So, I mean, it's, it, it, one of these things about the, the, coming back to that is that the electronic warfare is they can't use electronic warfare against the technologies they're using for their own comms. So because they seem to have not supplied their troops with enough secure comms that can work even when the uh, electronic warfare is is active, there's a lot of areas they're not able to use it as much as well.
0: It's, it's pretty amazing for an army with such a fearsome reputation and people who... I have a pretty strong reputation of um, <laughs> of using military technology aggressively. Uh, the idea of secure portable communications is is nothing new, um, and uh, it's 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 sort of stunning that um, that they're in this position. You mentioned earlier hacktivism. Uh, you know, thinking back to World War II a uh, number of film producers who, who weren't particularly known for leading virtuous lives or intense patriotism, maybe before the war, um, who during the war turned their 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 good uh skills and deeds into uh, propaganda for the US. The people like Frank Capra, who made films, Why We Fight, and there are a number of others who who made patriotic uh and important films. Um, so you think of creative people turning their their skills to the use of of, of one side in the war uh, i mean is that how how we should think of some of these hacktivists are are some of them actually people who are engaged in ransomware and uh, other forms of cyber attacks who are now um, helping the ukrainians and attacking the russians or is it uh is it more sophisticated well, than that
1: i mean i think we've seen a couple of different groups so there's the cyber partisans out of i believe or Quote unquote out of Belarus, where they actually are, is not really clear, are one of the most interesting actors. And they seem like a genuine hacktivist group that um, has had actual, you know, real effects around the Russians' ability to wage war. One of the, some a, a card they've played, I think, more than once, has been to disrupt the automatic signaling on the Belarusian train system um, that has prevented, you know, so the Russian military defends. Depends very heavily on rail. Um, I think largely is an artifact of the size of the country and its smaller population. And so, by disrupting rail operations, they're actually able to disrupt uh, troop movements and require cause significant delays in operations and even changes in plans. So I think that's sort of one area they're very interesting. They have a, a you know well organized campaign that seems to be having real effects. So there's that kind of activist group. There is. Um, State actors who are posing as activists, we, uh, you know, it's those are hard to call out clearly, but um, before we actually, before we get to that, let me say the other side, which is there are then the Russian cyber criminals who are, uh, that are, that are in some ways, very literally, the Russian uh, cyber reservists who are being conscripted uh, or voluntarily uh, becoming hacktivists and sort of fighting for the cause of Russia. And then in this case of like the state actors, you know, we've seen both, um, you know, hacktivists hacking some of these Russian um, cyber groups and dumping all of their information, dumping internal logs for years, um, you know, doxing them, providing information on them. But then we've also seen other groups which have like very detailed, who have dumped very detailed dossiers on various actors and who they are and where they live and you know, where they, you know, what their bank accounts are, or whatever, that sure looks like it might have been um, some state group, which just decided to leak this intelligence under the name of a um, a, a hacktivist, which is <laughs> right out of the Russians playbook, you know, Glucifer uh, 2.0 was, is, is generally well, well accepted to be um, Russian state actors leaking uh, stuff as a hacktivist. So this is a a common playbook that the various powers use these days is when they want to leak something, they have a hacktivist leak it. Um, and then we've also seen sort of the the um, Ukrainian sort of cyber reserves, which is, you know, so, or, or foreign legion maybe is a better way to put it, um, which they have sort of had an open call for people to come contribute. And I think there has been a large amount of that. So you see a lot of a lot of uh, people there supporting the Ukraine in that way, and then there's also the all of the the other sort of the, the, these hacktivists, these Western hacktivists or non-aligned with Russia activists, wherever they come from, you know, hacking Russia. And I think that they, in some ways, um, tacitly people ha- or see, have seen they've been given sort of tacit position, uh, permission that you know it's it's open season to hack Russia right now. And so if you're like a um, professional in the InfoSec or IT community or just a hobbyist, you've sort of, it's not, I don't think it's, there's any official word, but I think the community is sort of feels that is tacitly acceptable now uh, to just go hack Russia and you're not going to see repercussions for that, which from a policy standpoint, it's actually very dangerous, right? Because, you know, there's no deconfliction, you know. Uh, and what are these people going to do when the war is over? Are they going to stop hacking? Or are they going to keep doing it because it was it was getting, you know, providing them some value, you know, or are they going to uh, keep doing it and move into uh, the criminal regime or who knows? Right. I mean, I think, you know, one of the, the lessons from uh, the privateers uh, of of lore of, of history was that you know, when you decide you don't want them to do it anymore, it's very hard to get them to stop. So um, I think that's going to be a, an interesting outcome of this. So we kind of have those groups. We have, you know, of course, Ukrainian uh, you know, government people doing their job. We have uh, Russian uh, uh, government actors doing their things. We have the hacktivists on both sides. We have the state actors pretending to be hacktivists. And then we sort of have these reservists. Um, and so I think it's kind of a very big complicated mess and i'm sure there will be uh phd theses and think take pieces written about this for many years to come.
0: Right. Um it's funny when you mention privateers i also think about that Robert De Niro movie The Ronin. Uh these are cold warriors who are are have all these skills developed during the cold war and and no ostensible enemy so they they don't turn to good deeds they they turn lamentably to crime. It has a happy ending though. Um <laughs> with uh with Russia's own defenses, I guess we don't know much about them, or maybe we do. You know, a lot of people talk about how China and Russia have been pushed together more and more. Uh, financially, they're going to be more linked uh, as a result of this war, or as a result of the sanctions of the war. But I wonder if also China being opportunistic um, isn't looking at this for lessons to apply if it wants to invade Taiwan, but might also be thinking, gee, if we ever need to invade Russia for all of those natural resources in the east, which are in a very thinly populated part of Russia, and what we thought was this amazing military might not be so strong. Of course, they have a big nuclear deterrence, but who knows? Maybe that's susceptible to hacking. I don't know. If you're if you're a, a big malevolent power like China and looking at Russia, or frankly, if you're the United States, we're thinking, all right, so maybe, maybe Ukraine is a little like the Spanish Civil War. It's the warm-up to something bigger that's coming down the road. Um, are there are there lessons we we've sort of learned about what to use against Russia itself from this?
1: Uh, I mean, I think it's you know that's definitely going out of my depth, but I certainly as I've been trying to understand how this conflict is resol- uh, evolving from a cyber standpoint, I've read of a lot of other things, um, and I think the danger there is to assume that Russia's capability in one type of war is going to be mirrored in another type of war. Uh, and I think that, you know, when you ask can Russia defend itself, I think that's a very different question than can it mm-hmm. have a campaign in a foreign place, right? It has It is built heavily up to defend itself. It has its internal rail system. It has its supply depots, logistical, you know, some of the logistics and supply chain problems, uh, logistics problems it has will not be exist if you were to try to invade them and in the same way that that's the advantage that Ukraine has had, right? They don't have a logistics problem because they've got all of their stuff set up where it needs to be, where Russia has to bring in fuel, it has to bring in food, it has to bring in, you know, force into the Ukraine. I think it would be dangerous to assume that we would see the same kind of response if we tried to in- invade Russia. But again, I I don't really know. One, one lesson that seems to have come from this is that there's been a lot of corruption in the way money was spent in the Russian military and that... <laughs> They may not be as well-equipped as they thought they were, at the top, at least.
0: That's right. Yes. It it seems to be uh, pretty epic. Um, You know, perhaps finally, uh, as far as what hasn't happened or maybe what did happen early in the war, there were some reports. And actually, it was before uh, the actual kinetic part of the war happened of, of distributed denial of service attacks against Ukrainian government website's okay, big deal. So maybe, you know, for a day or two, you can't get the info you wanted from the health ministry or whatever. Um, perhaps more seriously, there were reports of ATMs not working in Ukraine. Um, but that seemed to be pretty limited. Um, have, have you heard anything more about that? Or do you think that's just a case where the banks are the ones that are actually the best defended?
1: Uh, I don't think we've heard more, but it's not clear that that's how the Ukrainian economy is functioning right now. So I think I I wouldn't want to draw conclusions. You know, if I were a Ukrainian citizen, would I depend on the banks working tomorrow? I probably wouldn't. Um, So maybe they've just shifted. Uh, I think, you know, one other area that we didn't touch on that I think that 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 reminded me of it's one thing we have seen is the uh, Russia or Russian aligned uh, hackers repeatedly hacking Ukrainian news websites and and things and posting fake stories about the Ukrainian surrender. Um, now they don't. None of them have, are have seemed credible at all, and I they there's not. It's not like it seems to be having an effect. But that's another area which we see see deployment right now. But I think I I don't know that the banks are ever defended. I just wonder if they're they're just changing the way people are changing the way they operate. You know. I mean that's that is one of the things that we always have to remember is that where you know cyber is. Deeply integrated into our supply chains at a global scale. You know, at a local scale, if you know your grocery stores, you know, cash registers stop working, they can just take cash. You know, if they can stock those shelves, they will take money. Um, so I think it, it certainly can make operations less efficient, right? At a global scale, we can't back away from IT. We can't back away from comms because it has made us so much more efficient. You know, as we're looking at drastically reshaping our energy economy, we're looking at feeding a world of tens of billions of people, you know, in the middle of the decade, the efficiency gains that can be had through communications versus, well, I planted my grains, I harvested them, and I took them by cart to the market to sell them, right? That's a very significantly less efficient system than, well, I know exactly where the demand is and what they want, right? So I think IT infrastructure, you know, now but that's at a macro scale i think in the micro scale people can work things out i mean whether it's a gift economy or barter you know if they have food they're probably not going to let their citizens starve in this environment
0: right probably why i should have a few silver coins in the safe and maybe a ham radio to communicate in the case of nuclear war <laughs> shortwave, shortwave.
1: That way you can shortwave. listen. wave. I think that is a yeah, broadcast
0: from the listening stations. Uh huh. That's right. And works. you can get anywhere at night on shortwave, right?
1: And when, um, the, when the atmosphere is right and you can bounce off the atmosphere, you can get to the other side of the world.
0: That's right. I think we at the State Department were trying to get North Korea from California at one point. Uh, at <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Cyber the Context. That was Jonathan Moore, Chief Technology Officer of Spider Oak and Christian Whiten. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to our podcast. We'll be back again soon with another episode. Thanks.